Deacon Dale Donovan, would you ask a prayer for mercy? standing. Good morning. Will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 98? Number 98 in the red. <clears throat>
this time, does anyone... Oh, I had two hands, and I'm sorry. I saw Jolene first, Sheila. Okay, Sheila, sorry, Jolene. <laughs> Good morning. 500 in the red. All right. Didn't even get the chance to explain. Favorite hymn this morning and a reason. Favorite reason for this this morning. Gotcha. Thank you. 500 in the red. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Colossians, 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 25, and you'll find that page 1834 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Colossians 3. 12 through 25. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Will you take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 279, 279 in the brown?
we talk about faith and the family. In our last study on living by faith, we began to look at some of the practical areas of life that faith in God commands us to obey. We talked about faith in marriage. We looked at the origin of marriage. It was instituted by God between one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship and not as sociological uh, people teach as the outgrowth of societal frustration with polygamy. The partnership of marriage for a believer is that we are to marry another person of the faith. You remember that Samson sinned against this principle when he pressured his father to obtain a Philistine woman for his wife. And his parents asked, Aren't there any women in Israel for you? But he would not listen. Well, what happened? It cost him his wife. She was burned by the Philistines because they hated Samson. And it cost him his eyes because they hated him too and blinded him. We learned that marriage is more than a godly outlet for sexual expression. It is a partnership of soul, of thinking, of goals, of aspirations. Oneness in faith is essential if you have the choice. If God allows you to marry in such a way that you can choose uh, the one you wanted to marry, and they're a Christian or believer like you, that is what is best. We learn that faith values marriage by preserving and revering it and by promoting marriage, which is the norm of how God populated the race. Today, we want to look at faith and the family. And our text is found in the book of Colossians. Chapter 3, verses 12 and following. As we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. We're so thankful, Lord, that in the scriptures, you cover all the bases. I'm sure we have young people, and as they mature into young adulthood, they certainly think about their future and the possibility of marriage, having a family. Well, wonder of wonders, you have a lot to say about that in the scriptures. So we're not left hanging out to dry. We are indeed in, in loved by you, embraced by you, with the truth on all the issues of life, so that we don't have to guess. And it is a joy to know, and it's also peaceful to know, that we can enter into the will of God concerning whatever comes our way in life, because in your scriptures you have a word on it that is very helpful and very instructive and enabling itself. So we thank you for that 
truth and for what we find in the book of books. Bless our time together. Speak to hearts. Save whom you will. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking today at the subject of faith in the family. The first thing we note is that children are a part of God's original plan of marriage. I mean, when we think of family, our minds go to children. Indeed, we are all part of someone's family by birth or by adoption. Usually a name is attached to that family. The Smiths, the Joneses, the Michaels, whatever. The last name of the father or the patriarch being the representation of the line under which the family is associated. As we learned last week with regard to marriage, children were and are part of the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Let me read it for you. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now instead of the evolutionary hype that man evolved from some lower primate, namely a nape, recent scientific discovery in genetics addresses a particular DNA structure unique to women and only passed on through the female or mother line. This was discovered in 1987. Let me read it for you. In 1987, a team at the University of California at Berkeley published a study comparing the mtDNA, MT standing for mitochondrial. Gobbledygook to us. But DNA chromosomes composed in the outer layer of cells, not in the nucleus, but the outer layers. And of the 147 people that they tested from five of the world's geographical locations, they concluded that all 147 tested had the same female ancestor. She is now called the mitochondrial Eve because they were looking at that DNA. We all have these mitochondrial chromosomes whether we are male or female. But the chromosomes are carried only through the mother. This is interesting because the creation account of Genesis says this. 
Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Wow. I find that very revealing. Genesis 3, verse 20. 6,500 years ago, according to the genetic trace made in the study, being a young earth and man's appearance on the earth was at the exact time God's word indicates chronologically. So science is confirming, though unwittingly, and I might say unwillingly, they are confirming that there was one woman whose name was Eve, according to the Bible, from whom the entire race can trace its biological DNA. I'm telling you, that is absolutely amazing. And it shoots a whole, no, an atomic bomb into the whole concept of evolution. All of this tells us that when God said to Abraham and Eve, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, their children, Cain and Seth, who replaced Abel, whom Cain killed, you remember, the entire human race, singular, derives its existence from this one couple obeying God's mandate to reproduce and populate the earth. Not multiple bugs coming out of the soup and evolving into human beings and so on and so on. The world's population today, 2023, is just about 7.9 billion people. And it is estimated that it will hit 11 billion by the year 2073. The world's land mass is 57,511,026,000 square miles. If Australia were plotted out in one quarter acre lots for every single person on the globe the billions of people everyone could live in Australia alone and the rest of the planet would be uninhabited so much for the population overload scares that drive much of Planned Parenthood and the World Health Organization agenda on abortion. You should kill the babies because, after all, we're running out of places to put you people. Not really. There again, the lies of the evil one that disregards the truth of Scripture. So God made the earth mass sufficiently large enough to accommodate his mandate for Adam and Eve to fill the earth 
with people. The psalmist writes, Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3. Isaiah confessed, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah 8, verse 18. Children were and are part of God's original plan of marriage. Secondly, Christian parents are given God's children on loan to raise for him. Wonder if we've ever thought about this. I know we often claim ownership. We say things like, um, well, that's my daughter, Sarah. Or, that's my son, Charles. As we introduce our family to friends. But the reality is that we have our children as a heritage from the Lord, as we read in Psalm 127. And that brings with it an obligation to God to see to it that we raise them in an environment that will result in their salvation and service to Christ if God's grace rests upon them. Note how often the Bible connects children of believing parents, people of faith, with the obligation of teaching them about God. For example, when Israel was given the law of the of God through Moses, the final instruction he gave to them was this. And this is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you awake, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. There's a biblical text approving placards in your home that have scripture verses on them. You can find them in most Bible bookstores. Where'd they get that? They got it from this text. Again, God said of Abraham, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after me to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Well, what did God promise Abraham? Genesis 18, verse 19, that God would make of Abraham a great nation. Well, if you're going to have a great nation, that means a lot of offspring. Many offspring. Asaph, composed of 
psalm indicating the ongoing generational responsibility of parenting, he writes, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, the wonders of all that he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Wow. A couple generations here in that one verse. That's Psalm 78, verse 2 through 6. Brethren, I don't know if you know this, but it takes but one generation. One generation. Generation is about 36 or 38 years, depending on what chart you're using. But it takes about one generation for a family untaught to become totally ignorant of the things of God. One generation. 36 years. Well, we have in America multiple generations of people who have never been in the gospel preaching church. They've never been to Sunday school. They've never sat in a Bible study. They have never been taught to pray. They do not know who Jesus is. They know nothing of his creation account. They know nothing of man's fall into sin. Though they sin every day. As we all do. They're ignorant of heaven. While being children of the devil. They're unchurched, uneducated. Locked into sin and death. With no hope. And Paul writes, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. Boy, that's something. You. You were in the same boat. He goes on. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2, verse 12 and 12. Might I say that's a deplorable state to be in? Without hope, without God in the world. As Christian parents, we have an obligation to correct that. Exactly what the scripture says. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Solomon did this in the Proverbs. 
which he wrote and are basically his instructions to his children, be they all adult children. And he writes, My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. Keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Proverbs 6, 20 and following. And it was Solomon who gave us this wonderful promise that we like to quote and to which we cling for all of our adult children who are yet estranged from Christ. They don't know him. Here it is. Solomon writes, Train a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not turn from it. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Our children are unloaned from God. What we do with them, God holds us again. So, godliness involves training. Think of this a minute. How training involved in all for life, not just for children. Young Timothy, not a little kid, but a young man, a young adult. Young Timothy, being tutored by Paul for the ministry, was told, let me read it for you, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. So here he is told to avoid certain things. Godless myths and old wives' tales. And he's told to put on some other things in, re- in replacement. Train yourself to be godly. So he wasn't going to become godly by osmosis. Nor by sitting around all day, wasting away his hours in idle pursuits. No, he was told to apply himself. Let me read it for you. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it 
will become more and more ungodly. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 and 16. Do you ever think you become more ungodly through lack of diligence? Oh, well then that means you're not just sitting there idle and nothing is happening to you. Yes, something's happening to you. You're atrophying. You're going downhill spiritually. These texts are illustrative of adults in training in order to learn how to be obedient in God's word. And when they failed because of laziness or indifference, the writer of Hebrews did not hesitate to call them on the carpet and to rebuke them. Here's what he wrote. We have much to say about this. But it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word. All over again. Ooh, that's scary. That means they're digressing, not progressing. He goes on. We have much to say to you about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5, verse 11 and following. What he's saying is that stagnation is not acceptable. Reaching a certain spiritual plateau and staying there is not acceptable. You must progress on. But he's saying to them, you're not doing that. You're not. You come just so far, and then it's like you you stop caring about the Lord. You were doing good, but you were doing good isn't the same as you are doing good. We must progress on, are we? Are we progressing on? Am I? It's interesting how the world has a handle on training for any and everything except knowing God. 
people go to college to train for a profession. They attend tech schools to learn a skilled trade. Athletes practice day in, day out, shooting balls through a hoop. Or zipping around on ice with skates. Or swinging a bat to hit a ball. All to bring themselves from a position of ineptness to skilled proficiency in what they view will bring them recognition and money and pleasure. But, you know, there will be no active ball players in heaven, no hockey players, no architects, no engineers, no mathematicians, no computer geeks, no skilled trades, in a realm where the creator of all things and the God of all wisdom rules and reigns with absolute sovereignty. Where his will is all that is ever done and done gladly by those who love him and whom he himself empowers. People don't think about this. Their idea of heaven is take whatever they consider to be wonderful here on earth and they make that their heaven. Oh, even if it's sinful. Prostitution, being a philanderer, being an embezzler. But training in righteousness, training in godliness... Training in obedience to the revealed will of God are things you will not discard in the world to come. And for our children, training in these matters can reap an eternal harvest. But nothing's automatic. You have to work on it. You have to expose yourself to the teaching of God's word. You have to teach your children the things of God. So, that's my second point. The methodology for training children to know and love God. How do we do that? Well, number one, instruction. Of course, you have to have instruction. All the students here have one thing on their mind this time of the year. And that is, school is either already out or it will be out this week or the next week. And they will be into summer vacation. But there's no vacation from training in the things of God. We read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. 
Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. What I like about this text is the casual, almost unassuming nature of the instruction. There's a place for the formal classroom, I realize that. But what we have here is a parent, or parents, plural, just living life in an agricultural society whose children are ever-present, we might even say underfoot, wherever the parent goes. And so, as he goes about living life, he uses the events of the day to teach his children about God. I think those that are involved in agricultural issues have a plus in this area over being stuck in a machine shop because you're out in nature and you can point to what you see and what's going on with God's growth. An example of this is found in the instruction given to the Israelites on sacrificing the perfect lamb of their flock and sprinkling its blood on the doorposts of their Egyptian abodes. The night God's death angel took the life of the firstborn in Egypt to force Pharaoh to expel the Israelites from their land. And we read, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is going to give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Exodus 12, verse 24 and 5. Now think about this. The only way for future generations to know what Passover was about was if mom or dad instructed them on its meaning. They either weren't there in Egypt the night this occurred or they were too young. And yet as an Israelite whose people God rescued and redeemed from Egypt with the blood of the perfect lamb, they needed to know redemption's story. So the parents had an obligation to relate it. So too, when we, Christian parents, instruct our children on Christ and his cross, whom Paul says is our Passover lamb, our children are learning God's redemption story. And they're learning it for themselves. The only way sinners are forgiven and cleansed and brought into a right relationship with God. Suddenly, John's declaration about Jesus makes sense. Look, says John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh, the Lamb of God. Hmm. 
That's John 1, 29. And the people of that day and the children of our Christian teaching, if we're doing our job, know that John was not talking about a woolly animal walking across a pasture meadow. No, because of biblical instruction, they know we are talking about Jesus and his cross, his death that paid for the sins of all who believe in him. Thus the charge, look, says John. Look, yes, but look in faith. Look believing. Look in trust. Look and live. Look and live. There's no shortcut here. You cannot instill godliness in the children, into anyone for that for that matter, apart from instruction. People have to read the Bible. They have to study the Bible so that God's word becomes part of them. But they're not doing that. Nobody's doing that in our day. Psalm 119 is the model psalm on this because David the king of Israel nonetheless saw the wisdom and knowledge of God as essential to his rule and the thing that separated him from his peers. He put it this way, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, And because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your command. Boy, what beautiful expression. Turn to me, he says, and have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps, he says, according to your word, and let no sin rule over me. Well, God's the only one that can do that, I'll tell you. He's the only one that can break the power of sin in a person's life. I would commend to you the whole psalm That's Psalm 119 as a praise poem lauding the benefits of studying God's word. And children need this instruction. So how do we help our children mature in the faith? Firstly, by teaching them. And secondly, through the use of discipline. If our children are born into our families innocent, free from sin, free from our sin nature, the task of teaching them God's word would be much easier. 
Indeed, the world often thinks of children as being born good. They use terms like pure, innocent, naive. And I see where they're getting this. It's a comparative definition. They look at the adult world of wickedness in which they live. They compare it to the naivete in their children and they conclude, well, my child is innocent. He or she is good in heart. As Christians, however, we cannot take our definitions from comparatives because God looks at the heart and while children may not be into sexual lust or drunkenness or murder or blasphemy, they are definitely into lying, selfishness, greed, covetousness, temper tantrums, and the like on their level as they express their sinful nature. And we have God's word on this, so I'm not guessing. Genesis 5, verse 1 and following, says this. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. By the time Adam procreated Seth, he had already fallen into sin, and he had sired the first murderer, Cain, who, as you know, killed his other son, Abel. So sin was already in the bloodline of Adam's children because sinners beget sinners. That's what they do. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he confessed to God. Here's his confession. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. So what he's saying is adultery, as an adult, had its roots in the sin nature of his birth. Why? Well, because sinners sin. That's what they do. That's what we all do. We're sinners, so what do we do? We sin. And may I say that every seed of every sin are in us by nature, but it's only God's restraint that keeps us from exercising every sin. That's why you have people say, oh, man, I, I would never cheat on my spouse. 
It's not in me. Murder somebody? That is so repulsive. I would never do that. And I believe it. But I bet you tell lies. I bet you get angry. I bet you have periods of deception. Because every seed of wickedness is there. It just needs the right amount of water and nourishment to sprout. David put it this way, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. From the womb, wow. Psalm 58, verse 3. After the great flood of Noah's day, God said, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. That is a mouthful. Think about that. Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Paul put it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sin. Romans 5, verse 12. Now this is such a universal truism that in the third chapter, Paul wrote, all have turned away They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3, verse 12. Not even your baby, not even your toddler. No one is innocent. Yes, we all sin on our level, but it's still sin before God. And what might be very startling to some parents is to read the list in Romans 1, verse 28 and following, where Paul describes the kind of sinful behavior which issues from a depraved mind, his words, not mine, a depraved mind. And what does he list? Let me read some of it. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, arrogant, boastful, They invent ways of doing evil, etc., etc. It's a long list, you can read it, on horrendous sins against God. And just about in the middle of this long list we read, they disobey their parents. Whoa! How did that get in there? It's in there with things like Murder and gossip and incest and God-haters and... How'd that happen? 
worse. Read the conclusion. These things, writes Paul, deserve death. Verse 32. How so? Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. This is sin. So, you're going to be paid the wages. Death. Ezekiel put it this way. The soul who sins is the one who will die. That's what you get for sinning. The son will not share in the guilt of the father, nor will the father share in the guilt of the son. We each are going to get your own. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Children have their own guilt. We have our own guilt. So, we do our children no favor if we minimize or worse dismiss the sin that they do in their life on their level rather as trivial in comparison to the wickedness perpetuated by adults i mean sin is sin the payment for sin is death children die Adults die. Adults need a Savior. Children need a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior there is. And he has told us, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 19, verse 14. They need the Savior the same as adults. And all this being true, how are we, along with Abraham and Hannah and Solomon and others, how are we going to raise our families so that they come to know God as Savior? Well, we're going to give them instruction, yes. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. So there's another way. Proper discipline. Proverbs 22, verse 15. What about Proverbs 29, 15? The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame on his mother. The rod and reproof. Oh, so they go together. In some countries of the world, spanking your kid will not let, will not, well, excuse me, will net you the Department of Social Services confiscating your child or worse, throwing you in jail. The USA is heading in that direction. Not yet, not in Michigan. We are charged by God. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but instead let God remold your minds from within. Romans 12 verse 2, the Phillips translation. Biblical sanity must rule the Christian life. We do not beat our kids to death, but we do spank them when they defy our instruction. Some of the most pathetic displays of wimpy parroting that I have witnessed is a mom or a dad trying to reason with a defiant toddler 
out in public. That's where I've, I've seen this. Now, Jimmy, please don't throw the canned food out of the grocery cart. You might hit someone. You might hurt them. You don't want to hurt anyone, do you? Just about that time, another can flies down the aisle. I can guarantee you the children will choose public places to throw fits because they know they have you compromised. Many a time at malls, I would have to take one of my kids out of the mall to the parking lot, into the car, and swat their bottom, and then take them back into the mall. Say, whoa, what an inconvenience. Yes. But what great rewards. The scriptures tell us to believe God. What does God say? He who spares the rod hates his son. Who? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, God. Yeah, but God puts it that way. Let me read it again. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Just the direct 180 degree opposite of the world's philosophy on raising children. Again, discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about eternal death. Proverbs 19, verse 18. Again, punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. Proverbs 23, 14. Verse 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with a rod, he won't die. But why won't he die? Because you use restraint, that's why. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 22, verse 13. Again, the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Proverbs 29, verse 15, verse 27. And then there's this beauty. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Oh, Think of that. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes this discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Hebrews 12, verse 6. God does not want unruly brats in his family, and neither should we. 
And sometimes the only way to get through to an out-of-control trial is a swat on the bottom. But you have to be consistent. And they don't get disciplined because they spilled their milk. Or for being clumsy. Or for daydreaming. Those are normal occasions for children. Because they are children. But every defiance of your authority... That requires discipline. And you do that before you get to the wit's end. Out of control. I was talking to a pastor in Florida one time because he was going to have a uh, Bible conference down there. And he was inviting the churches of Michigan, if they could, to come down and be part of that. We're talking on the phone about what's who's going to be the guest speakers and so forth. And he suddenly stops and he says to me, Pastor Luke, uh, you're going to have to excuse me a minute. He says, I have a son that is acting up and I have to deal with it right now. So he says, I'll just leave you on the phone or I'll, I can hang up and call you back later. I said, no, that's okay. Just, just put the phone down. So he did. And I could hear him spanking Junior in the background. <laughs> and he got back on the phone. He says, he does this all the time. I says, what are you talking about? He says, he waits till I'm on the phone. And he thinks that dad can't can't get me now. So I'm safe. And he acts up, thinking that all will be well. Well, dad has taught him it ain't going to (laughs) work. You act up and you're going to be disciplined just as though you had not done a thing. So, discipline. That's one way. Instruction, discipline. Third way, reproof. Verbal correction. And I say this, never use the rod alone, but always with verbal correction. One time, one of my children violated the don't get in the cookie jar rule. So I looked at this person. I said, were you in the cookie jar? No. I know they were lying through their teeth because the chocolate was all over their face. They were chocolate chip cookies.
So anyway, they got spanked. And I brought in verbal correction. Do you know why Daddy spanked you? Uh-huh. Why? Because I ate the cookies. Wrong! Wrong! Why? You were spanked because you lied to Daddy about the cookies. So the verbal correction was key here. Blessed by child conclude that eating cookies was somehow sinful. But lying was not. The scripture says, he who disciplines shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 10, 17. Whoever loves discipline, lo- discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I didn't say it. God said it. Proverbs 12, verse 1. He who ignores discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Proverbs 13, verse 18. Proverbs 15, verse 5. A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Stern discipline awaits him who leaves the path, but he who hates correction will die. Verse 31. He who listens to the life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. Verse 32. He who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. A rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than a hundred lashes to a fool. Think of that one. Wow. Proverbs 17. New Testament text, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. Don't give your kids your opinion. Give them a word from God for what you're saying and live what you say because they can spot a phony in a heartbeat. Say, well, what's the goal? Let me close with this. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 13 and 5. Goal. The goal is that our children instructed in the Word of God disciplined through the temperate and consistent use of the rod, corrected in their sin by reproof, will with us not depart from these things when they're old, but will come to know and love Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. There's only one way of salvation for kids and for adults alike. It's the repent of your sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your life will tell whether your faith is real or bogus. The proof is in the pudding, as my grandma used to say. Let's see it in your life, and then we'll talk about whether what you say is genuine. Lord, make us genuine, we pray. We don't want to be hypocrites. We're often charged as that by people of the world. We may be or may not be. It might be that the world just misunderstands what's going on. But nonetheless, the charge is leveled. And a hypocrite is a person that says one thing and does another. It's like, what I have to say and teach is for you, but it's not for me. I live by a different set of rules, and that's okay. No, it's not okay. If we're hypocrites, then God is going to judge us for the hypocrisy. We must live out our faith. We must believe it and practice it. So I pray that you'll help us as we talk about a living faith. Today we talked about a living faith with dealing with our families, with our children. Who would have thought that the Bible has so much to say about raising children? But it does. It does. And a whole lot more than I have dealt with today. I pray that you will make us readers and studiers of the book of Proverbs in particular. Because, Lord, that's your instruction to your sons, to your daughters. And it helps us with our families. Thank you for the beautiful day. Thank you for each one here today. May the peace of God and God's grace be upon us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. The red hymnal, number 355. Three five five. When you find three five five in the Trinity, will you stand with me, please?
That's what we've sung today. We are your children by grace. We didn't work our way into your family. We believed in the Christ who is the author of your family and who secured a spot for us in your family through his shed blood. Because we had a problem becoming part of your family, and that problem was sin. We've talked about this morning. doesn't matter if we're talking about children or adults. We all sin. We all disobey your word. So we need an advocate. We need a Savior that will go before us. And praise you, praise your name. You came, you saw, and you conquered. The cross was your goal. And you didn't you didn't slip back, scripture says. No, you did not retreat, but you pressed on. Scared your disciples, I know. But they had yet to figure out just how vast a savior they needed because of their sin and how you in giving your life was dying for the sins of your people through all the ages the perfect sacrifice we praise you for that bless those that are here today with the truth of your word 
encourage us, comfort us, save whom you will, strengthen us in our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You were sneaking into their diary, right? <laughs> well, that's for sure. I had a pretty good disciplinary father. No nonsense. He didn't put up with nonsense. But he loved us in Christ. And that was important to Some of you, have, many of you have met my father before the Lord took him away. He lived to age 100. was happy to go and be with the Lord. Told my sister, I'm ready to go. Walked into her bedroom one morning, he says, I says, I'm going. Boom. Fell flip face down on the floor. I'm going home. Is what he was about to say. I hope you have that trust, that confidence, that we have such a loving Savior. He doesn't want us to go to hell. He wants us to be with Him in glory. But He also wants us to be honest about what puts us in hell. And that's our sin, our wickedness. And He's saying to us, I will take the cost of your sin, but you're going to have to trust me, not yourself. You're going to have to believe that I will do it. You can't do it. And that's the great news of the gospel. Lord, bless us with the truth of your word today. Give us that encouragement that we need. We as a church have some uh, pretty serious things coming up with these surgeries that we mentioned earlier in the uh, in the program today. And we're asking that you're going to be the one who intervenes behalf of Jared and Mercy because of your great love and your great power to care for your people. Bless the truth of your word to any that are lost today. Bring them to know Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. By the way, there's this little ring up here.